Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I am coming to you with a listener-submitted question and answer episode. So for today's Q&A episode, got three questions that I'm going to focus on. First one is, I live in Mesa, Arizona. Can I overtrain in the heat with negative impacts? I think I'm going to add a little bit to that one and just talk a little bit about heat training in general, because I think that will... Uh, help you understand possibly how to avoid scenarios of overtraining when it comes to running in the heat. Uh, Best workout to test race pace strategy for 50 kilometer to 100 kilometer ultra marathons. And then finally, best way to get into a low carb diet while early in training for an ultra marathon. Should I ease into it or jump right in? All right. So First one, living in uh, Mesa, Arizona, I can appreciate that being a Phoenician for four years myself. I did uh, four summers where, uh, you know, heat was something that was inevitable. You could always get on a treadmill or something like that if you really wanted to. But for someone like myself, and I'm guessing uh, similar to the person who submitted this question, they prefer to run outside. So uh, the question of, am I overtraining? Am I doing any damage running in the heat? Uh, what can I do about it is a very good and appropriate question to be asking yourself if you live in these areas where it gets really, really hot like it does in, in Arizona. So the way that the question is worded is looking at overtraining. So overtraining in the sense that you can like overexert yourself and then not be able to perform after that for a period of time. Yeah, you can overstretch yourself. I think it's it's more of a logistical thing than it is going to be like, is it the heat in and of itself? Like, is it inevitable? So I think there's things you can do to avoid this. And there's just going to be things you need to pay attention to so that you don't put yourself in a position of, of expectations that are not appropriate for that type of a climate. So one is going to be just like the pacing strategy that you use when you're running in the heat. Uh, this is where I think effort is a much better gauge than most other metrics is because you can calibrate effort across such a variety of different scenarios that if you really understand that, then you'll understand and not overthink and overreact to scenarios that are going to negative impact things like pace, possibly heart rate, and, uh, and, over, and over, try to overcorrect or push through, so to speak, which could lead to things like overtraining or I like to say going past your appropriate training load because train overtraining in and of itself is kind of a, of a nebulous word, an ill-defined word, a word that we don't even really know, like necessarily what is overtraining um, outside of just like, you know, overreaching for a significant period of time where you need to step back and take some rest. But it is, it's not really something where you can say like, oh, I'm overtrained, therefore, I need to take X number of days off. There's like a lot of like nuance and specific types of scenarios that you would need to like really dig into the exact one to really know the path forward for stuff like that. So uh, when it comes to heat training, you can overdo it, but a lot of times I think it's logistical. So things like not properly hydrating before, during, and after, 
uh, not properly protecting yourself from the sun when you can, uh, trying to avoid maybe too many days in a row training in like the heat of the day versus trying to find times to do it maybe when you're less exposed to sun, uh, where it's a little bit cooler. I know it's hard to find those days in the summer in, in Arizona there when it rarely peaks below 80 or even 90 in some cases. Uh, and then also just what are you doing outside of, uh, of those things to help kind of keep your core temperature down? So let's go through some of that. Um, one is going to be like the pacing expectations. So I think just be comfortable with your pace being a little bit slower in most cases. Uh, it's it's going to be something where your body is going to be fighting harder to keep your body cool enough to be able to function. And if you push past that, that's when you're going to potentially overheat and have issues. So like if you have like a run that would normally produce a specific pace, it's okay to go out at the effort of that run, but make sure you manage your expectations and don't necessarily freak out if your pace is slower on any given run because of that. Trust the effort. And then what I like to do is give yourself some opportunity to test your fitness in a more appropriate temperature from time to time in order to really assess whether you're making the right progress or not. So an example, of this could be you're doing your training outside five days a week and your pace is slower, but your effort is appropriate. So you're kind of curious, am I actually making improvements or not? You can look at your improvements within the hot days to see movement there. Or you can also, what I like to do is pick a day, maybe every couple of weeks, get in a well air conditioned area and hop on a treadmill, test a workout there. And then go back and test it again in a couple of weeks and see if there's improvements being made. So I like that one outside of just the heat training itself too, because that's a very controlled environment. So if you hop on a treadmill and do a workout to see if your pace improved at a given intensity or a given heart rate, and then come back two weeks later at that exact same treadmill, exact same temperature, pretty much everything controlled for the most part, other than potentially your recovery status, your sleep status, and things like that uh, your mood, but you know, you can document those things and try to get it as close as possible and then test again and see if there's improvements are there. You know, you can, you can test that stuff out as well. So that's one thing to consider when just managing your expectations with it. The next is just making sure you're prepared. A lot of people can probably remember a time where you went out for a run. Maybe it wasn't even in the heat and you just wanted to run. You don't want to worry about water stops. You don't want to worry about carrying a water bottle, all this stuff. So you just went and ran and you got a little dehydrated run, maybe even went fine. But then the rest of the day, you're just kind of digging yourself out of that hole. You're like drinking like water bottle after water bottle and barely going to the bathroom kind of a scenario. And you just feel maybe a little more lethargic, a little less energetic during the rest of the day. And it felt like it kind of took you a while to kind of catch back up. If you're doing that frequently in the heat, then you're likely going to have a scenario where you're feeling like you're overtraining because you're not bouncing back from one session to the next, because you're not giving yourself enough time to catch up with things like water and electrolytes. So you can, you can avoid that or minimize that by making sure you're going out into those runs well hydrated, you're hydrating during the runs, and then you're starting to get rehydrated after the run itself too. So you just got to be a little more conscious of those logistical things in order to make sure you're staying on top of it. Uh, other thing that is really valuable in the heat and this one, I think it's probably one of the more underrated ones is topical cooling. So 
one thing that's really interesting is once your body kind of starts to overheat, it's very difficult to bring that temperature back down, especially when you're back out there, when, while you're out there in the heat, continuing the activity that caused it in the first place, you can drop your core temperature way faster with topical cooling, or, you know, the quickest way would be to jump in ice water, essentially, or cold water. Uh, you probably want to be a little careful about jumping in a big ice tub of water if it's a huge temperature variance. Uh, but most people aren't going to be doing that anyway, because they're not gonna have access to that in the middle of a run. So uh, the more practical and appropriate way to do it is going to be just topical cooling, which can be something as simple as when you stop for water, uh, whether it's like at a water fountain or a designated water stop that you put together yourself is uh, you just dump water on your head. And if you can get cold water or ice water, that's even better. That's going to bring your core temp down a lot quicker and more effectively. And it's also, especially in a dry heat like Mesa, it's also going to put you in a position where now you have moisture on you and that is going to keep you cool as airflow hits that wetness. So the hard part about desert heat is your sweat evaporates so fast. You hardly even can tell you're sweating. Sometimes you could be sweating profusely and hardly even notice it. And that's because it's evaporating off of you very quickly. So if you can help assist your body's sweat process by dumping water, cold water, especially on top of yourself, that's a win. There's other things you can do too. Cause uh, obviously you can only stop so many times is things like ice bandanas, where you wrap up a pack of ice inside like a bandana and tie that around your neck and that sort of things, or other people they'll be wearing like a pack. If it's a, light, a slightly longer run, you can put ice in the back with that bladder and let that just gradually melt down your back. These are all little things you can do to help out uh, arm sleeves, especially like white, light colored, very light arm sleeves can be helpful because the skin, your, the sun hitting your skin directly can actually uh, promote overheating more so than if you have a very thin layer of light, light colored fabric over it. Uh, the other advantage of that is you can jam icicles or ice, ice cubes down that sleeve too. So you have a little more cooling on the arms as well. Uh, that's kind of my strategy with it and the way I like to look at it, it just becomes a little more of a logistic hurdle to get over. I look at it similar to like in the winter when I would be training in Wisconsin, it was, uh, it was doable, but you just had to manage the logistics of it all. I had to wear way more clothes. A lot of times I had to pay attention to things like wind chill. I had to pick my routes specifically based on, uh, where the, you know, what was plowed and where the wind was heading and things like that. So I didn't get myself into a subpar situation and things like that. Uh, you know, anytime you're going outside of normal temperatures, you're probably gonna have to deal with a little more logistics. And this is just, just going to be one of them. Uh, fun story before we move on off of heat training is, uh, the first time I really started thinking about and doing proper heat, heat protocol was actually during a race. So it was in 2016, I was racing the Havelina hundred. It actually ended up hitting course record temps that year, got up to 102 degrees in the desert. So completely exposed, not a cloud in the sky, 102 degrees. Uh, I was heading around. It's a five loop course and each loop is about 20 miles. And I had, I think I had just finished the second loop for the day and the race director, Jamil Curry came up to me and he was, uh, I think he was just a little maybe concerned because I was leading, I was on course record pace and he wanted to make sure I was taking care of myself out there and not going to blow up due to the heat. So he asked me, he's like, do you know how to manage the heat in the desert? 
And at the time I, I was living in Northern California. So uh, I wasn't a desert, a desert person at that point in time. Uh, so it was a good question for him to ask me. And I, I, I asked him what his tips were. And he said, just, just dump water on yourself. Just get wet as you can at every aid station. So after that, uh, I started heading around the third loop. There's this spot where you go about six, a little over six and a half miles up this hill to the aid station in the middle of that 20 mile loop. And I remember getting close to it, feeling like I was just maybe starting to dry out a little bit, starting to overheat a little bit. As I got closer and closer to that aid station, I started questioning whether I was even going to finish that day. Uh, I thought I might end up having to drop out. I get to that aid station, which is about 52 miles into the course just doused myself with ice water head to toe completely drenched and it was like a light switch turned on and that was kind of like an aha moment for me i was like oh wow that is the move in the heat is as wet as you can get ice water even better and do that as often as possible from there on every aid station i was getting soaked soaked with it soaked with water and i'd oftentimes even bring an extra bottle with me to spray on my head because when you get out in that real dry heat you can be soaking wet a mile or two later completely dry uh, a lot different than the humid weather where you tend to retain some of that moisture. It just kind of sits on your clothes and sits on your skin. So give it a try. Let me know what you think. And if anyone has any other questions revolving around heat training and overtraining and that sort of thing, feel free to shoot me a note. We can chat about that one on a different episode. Another great way to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast is through the show sponsors. All sponsors, links, and discount codes can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors and in the show notes. This episode's sponsors include Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, no slip, no bounce, all polarized, and all fun. All Gooders are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized. Whether you're running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun, Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all orders over $50, 30-day free returns, one-year warranty, and 100% carbon neutral and 1% for the planet. Go to Gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash HPO and get 15% off your entire order when you use the promo code HPO at checkout. Also supporting this episode are Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens flagship product, AG1, is a supplement that contains 75 high-quality vitamin, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I take one scoop of AG1 and two drops of their vitamin D in eight ounces of cold water first thing in the morning. If you are looking to add a multivitamin to your regimen, AG1 is a lifestyle-friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low-carb, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their products based on the latest science and third-party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Links to those can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Uh, next, next question is best workout to test race pace strategy for 50 kilometer to hundred kilometer. So this is a really good question. I think anytime you're testing race pace, you're always going to be best looking at it through the lens of the workouts that you do that are the most specific to the race pace or race intensity that you're targeting. So this is where a lot of times ultra marathons deviate to a different workout than standard endurance events. The marathon is maybe the exception. So the marathon, you're likely going to do a long run with some percentage of it at goal marathon pace. And that is going to help you like whittle down what you actually are able to possibly achieve on race day. When you get into ultra marathons, it's similar to that vein. The difference is a lot of times the distances are quite a bit further than you would ever run on rate on in training. So let's take the far end of the spectrum for this question, hundred kilometers, hundred kilometers, 62 and a half miles. There's really no practical situation in which you're going to be running anywhere near race day volume in training for a single session. And if you do, it's likely a tune-up race. So, uh, it makes it a little more difficult to extrapolate forward to race distance the way you could with like, say a 22 mile long run for a 26.2 mile race, which you would get in like the marathon. So this is where I really like to look at the back-to-back -back long run as a potential tool to kind of help you gauge this. If you're really, really nervous about, or just unaware of what your goal race pace should be. So let's say you do a Saturday, Sunday, back-to-back -back long run. Uh, I like to do these near the, the, near the end of the training plan. So you're, I'm focusing more on long run development, back-to-back -back long run race pace, intensity stuff as I get closer to the race. So sometimes you have to wait a little further in the plan to really nail down what that's going to be. Uh, I like to use the second as kind of my real interesting one to look at because I'll be carrying in some of the residual fatigue from the rest of the training. I'm not tapered because I'm not at that point in training yet. I also have the previous day's long run in my legs. So it sort of helps get me a little closer to simulating what it's going to feel like during some of those uh, long miles at the end of the race itself, doing that long run at the effort that feels appropriate for that distance. And what pace that produces is going to give you a good starting point to go from. Uh, it can be a little easier to push past the fatigue in this situation because you're likely much better hydrated and much better fueled because you have essentially blocked your race day volume into two sessions, or in a lot of cases, even less than race day volume into two sessions. So you've had that between time to rehydrate, refuel and stay on top of some of that stuff, which you're not going to have the opportunity to do on race day. So if you go out there and do that second back-to-back -back long run, the safe kind of conservative way to do is maybe give yourself a little bit of a cushion, like 30 to 60 seconds per mile and start out the race at that. And then you're going to be in a position where you're likely not overreaching so much in the beginning where you're going to pay at the end. Uh, but you're also not in a situation where you won't be able to move really well at the end. If it turns out that that was a little bit of more of a conservative pace. If, uh, if you're interested about, or if you're worried about going out too slow, 
you should check out the episode I did with Nick Curry. It's the last episode just recorded. And he talks about his negative split strategy and what that's done. A um, little bit of a spoiler. He broke an American record at the 24-hour distance with the strategy. So 24-hour time, I should say, not distance with that strategy. So it's a very interesting thing. It's one I think a lot of ultra marathon runners should should check out and think about when they're strategizing their pacing strategy. If if we look at this too from the 50 kilometer side of the equation, because where I find things really interesting in ultra running is 50k is not so far away from the marathon that you can't get close to race distance for your long run. So it's going to be a lot easier to say, oh, I went out for like you know maybe a 24, 25 mile long run. I injected like. 12 to 15 miles at goal 50 K pace in there. I did it on non-tapered legs. I feel like it's sustainable versus doing the same thing and trying to extrapolate that out to hundred kilometers or hundred miles or whatever some of the longer distances may be. So for the 50 K, I think you can maybe get a little more precise with just like your final few long runs. If you're embedding some kind of goal target pace in there and just kind of feeling out what you what, what feels sustainable and, you know, be honest with yourself. If you do a 20, 25 mile long run with say 12 to 15 miles at goal, 50 kilometer pace, or what you think is going to be goal 50 kilometer pace. And you get done with that and you're just absolutely spent. That might be a sign that it's a little aggressive and you should maybe temper expectations a tad versus you do that same workout and you finish and you're like, all right, I could have pushed more miles into that race goal, race pace, or I don't feel trash or the rest of the day you're, you know, you clean up, you eat a meal and you're moving around pretty decently. You're not like completely spent the rest of the day and like super sore the next day. And just, just uh, taking extra time to kind of bounce back from, you know, those are things to maybe think about with, with that shorter ultra marathon distance. Cause you can get a little bit of a closer, more accurate look from, from training itself. All right. Final question for today's episode is best way to get into low carb diet while early in training for an ultra ease into it or jump in. This is a really good question. So I think, uh, we can eliminate jump right in. If you are already doing structured training in most cases, I don't usually prefer this route. I've seen scenarios where it's done and it's worked. I don't think it's a very good like risk reward ratio though, because you're sort of asking your body to make a fairly big transition while you're also asking your body to start absorbing training loads that are at your limit at that given time. And anytime you're asking yourself to maybe do multiple things at once is where you're going to potentially or change multiple things at once is where you're going to potentially run into more problems. So a scenario where I would say jump right in, uh, would be in the off season. So let's say you finish your a race for the year and you have four to six weeks before you're going to start structured training for your next buildup. Doesn't mean you're going to do no running. It could, but it doesn't have to be that. It just means you're not going to start really focusing on doing the exact things you're supposed to do in target of your next event for a month, month and a half. This is where I think jump right in can be valuable. Even if you know, or think that you're not going to stay with it at a, in a strict manner, because it at least gives you a look into the lifestyle and how you feel, how uh, you enjoy it, whether you think it's sustainable long-term or not, and really answer some questions about whether it's something that's right for you or not. 
And that I think is kind of the sweet spot if you have that opportunity. If you're in a situation where you started your structured training and you're like, I want to lower my carbohydrate intake, I wouldn't look at it through the lens of low carb or high carb or ketogenic or high carb diet. I'd look at it more in the lens of there's a spectrum here and like any reduction in carbohydrate is going to create some adaptation. The question is how much adaptation do you need to make? So rather than looking at it kind of more black and white of all carb, no carb, look at it as what am I trying to do here? If it is a scenario where you struggle to fuel during races, cause you get digestive issues. And no matter what you try, you have a real hard time targeting the recommendations of 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour. In my opinion, that's a very worthwhile thing to consider reducing your carbohydrate intake for because any reduction in carbohydrate is going to increase your fat oxidation rates to some degree. Most people are going to be able to eat some food during an ultra marathon. I have seen very few people that are like, Hey, I can't eat anything. So it is not necessarily something that you have to be, be all the way to one end of the spectrum for, uh, cause you're going to be able to defend muscle glycogen to some capacity. Then you just kind of want to get to like, what is an appropriate kind of point for yourself personally. Uh, you know, when I've had guests on that are like researchers into low carb and some low carb performance, they, I've gotten some data from them that has squared pretty nicely with what I've seen with the folks that have been following low carbohydrate and doing ultra marathons that I've coached. So, uh, the most specifically Matt Carpenter, I believe is episode 262. I would definitely check that one out. I love that episode. And I like Matt's perspective because he's not someone who's like, oh, you got to do low carbohydrate. It's the way to go. He's more like, there's people that are going to be using a low carbohydrate, some even a ketogenic approach to nutrition, and they want to do endurance events. So how should we be advising them versus our moderate high carbohydrate athletes? And some of the data he's collected and seen come through his lab, I think are very valuable uh, insight for folks that are in that situation. And what he said is a lot of the low carbers that have come through his lab are targeting anywhere between 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrate per hour on race day. And that seems to be an appropriate amount for them to defend muscle glycogen. For me personally, uh, you know, I've done stuff as formal as getting fat oxidation tests done close enough to a race where I trusted the numbers. And then I looked at where my ratios of carbs to fats were on the intensity I was going to race at. And then knew like, this is the amount of carbohydrate per hour I should be targeting in order to be properly fueled throughout the course of the event. And for me at the hundred mile distance at my fastest pace, which was right around nine miles per hour, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, like 30 to 40 grams per hour. So I know from personal experience, I can get up to 40 grams per hour without a whole lot of risk of digestive issues. So on race day, my thought was. I'm going to hit right about 40 grams per hour, as long as I can, as long as that feels good. And, and that worked great. I negative split the race. So it was pretty clear that I wasn't compromised in a muscle glycogen standpoint, uh, from that perspective. And, and, but that's, that's what you want to be asking yourself. You want to be asking yourself, like, how much can I eat per hour? And from there, start strategizing where you want your diet to be. So since it seems like most people are probably able to get up to 30 ish maybe a little more carbohydrate per hour 
even if they have a hard time eating during these longer races, that's going to be enough where you don't need to be in a strict ketogenic diet. If you enjoy a strict ketogenic diet, and that's the way you like to have your meals structured from day to day, you can do that. You're going to need less on race day. There's a trade-off, which is going to be, you're likely going to be able to process less carbohydrate. Your body's going to downregulate your body, your body's ability to do that. So if you're that person, you definitely shouldn't probably be targeting 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour, because uh, you're just probably not going to have the, the right setup personally to be able to, to be able to use that in a way that someone who's, you know, following a moderate or high carbohydrate diet and kind of training their body through tons of sports products and gels and foods and things during their workouts and stuff like that would, would be able to do. So a lot of it just depends on kind of where you want to be from a nutrition strategy in general, as well as where you're at personally with your race fueling success or lack thereof in some cases. So for that person who is, uh, I guess this is the side of the question where it's like ease in, this is where I would say, if you're going to make some changes during your, your, your program, like while you're already in ease in, like if you're someone who is, uh, eating a moderate carbohydrate diet and considering lowering, this is what I would do. I would just track your nutrition for a few days and find out exactly where your macronutrient ratios typically fall. Let's say you're somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% carbohydrate. Uh, we'll try lowering it to 50%, see how you feel and see what's happening. If that feels good and you want to try going a little lower, you can, and, uh, you're going to be making fat oxidation improvements with any reduction, even if it is just a little bit. So even if you end up saying, Hey, I'm not going lower than 50%. If you go from 60 to 70% down to 50%, your fat oxidation rates will likely improve too. Um, also, and this is a, definitely a topic for a different episode, but I'll mention it just because I think it's interesting. And it's been on the back of my mind for a couple of days now is uh, one of my previous guests, uh, Dr. Mike Nelson sent me a, a research paper that was actually looking at carbohydrate types and how that impacts fat oxidation rates. And I didn't have a chance to dive into the, the, the report that closely, but it looked like at first glance that there is some reason to believe that more complex carbohydrates are going to be more impactful on increasing fat oxidation rates than refined versions. So to some degree that makes intuitive sense, but it would be interesting to know if you could kind of keep your carbohydrate percentages at the same number, but still improve your fat oxidation rates. So stay tuned for that one. Maybe I'll have Dr. Mike come on and break that one down if it turns out to be something really compelling, but uh, kind of interesting things to consider and think about, but great question. Great questions in general. Looking forward to going through some of the other ones that came in in a future episode. If you have a question you'd like to submit, have me go over uh, feel free to send it to me. You can shoot me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on my website at zachbitter.com or any of my social media channels. Uh, the one that I'm more on top of is Instagram usually. So at zachbitter for that one. But until next time, thanks for tuning in. This is the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Dear host, Zach Bitter. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. 
Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.